Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. We want to welcome our listeners. We want to hear from you, especially as we mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, We'll be marking that today, obviously through a political lens, but tomorrow, more through a human lens. We'll be hearing from a sociologist, also a political scientist, also from a student, a Ukrainian student here uh, in the Midwest, uh, and we'll hear about her contact with her family back in Ukraine over this past year of war. What are your thoughts and questions about U.S. support for Ukraine? Is it enough? Too much? About right? Uh, Do you agree with uh, President Biden's view uh, about what's at stake in Ukraine? 1-866-780-9100. River to River at iowapublicradio.org is our email. Later in the program, we'll touch on some other politics. In fact, uh, I want uh, Megan and Jim's uh, remarks on the new documents revealed a few days ago uh, that uh, Fox News feared losing viewers by airing the truth about the election. Also, a consequential court election. Court election, we don't have those here in Iowa. We have retention questions on our ballots, but not court elections. Well, they do up in Wisconsin, and uh, there's one coming up in April that is highly consequential. But first of all, let's dive in uh, to uh, ahead of this first anniversary of the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, before I hear from uh, Jim and, and Megan with their analysis, let's recap some of the things we've been hearing in our news. President Joe Biden heading back here to the U.S. after meeting leaders of NATO's eastern flank uh, earlier today, two days after Biden's surprise visit to Kiev for a five-hour visit. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, we saw pictures with him. Uh, Also, China's top diplomat holding talks in Moscow uh, today. And this week, Putin suspending the last remaining nuclear weapons treaty with the U.S. A few of the uh, top um, uh, headlines uh, in that area, but certainly many more developments. Well, let's listen to part of a speech in the gardens of Warsaw's royal castle. Um, The president, uh, President Biden, emphasizing unity among NATO countries and unwavering support for Ukraine. When President Putin ordered his tanks to roll into Ukraine, he thought we would roll over. He was wrong. The Ukrainian people are too brave. America, Europe, a coalition of nations from the Atlantic to the Pacific, we were too unified. Democracy was too strong. Instead of an easy victory, he perceived and predicted. Putin left with burnout tanks and Russia's forces in 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 disarray. He thought he'd get the Findalization of NATO. Instead, he got the NATOization of Finland and Sweden. He thought NATO would fracture and divide. Instead, NATO was more united and more unified than ever than ever before. President Biden in Poland, um, uh, Jim McCormick, we're going to rely on your considerable foreign policy expertise here uh, for the view there, the geopolitical view. Of course, it's a European war, but it affects our global politics. Uh, The last few days have been remarkable in terms of news. Um, I I just want your general reflections on the state of the war with the news in mind that we've just been hearing and as we near this one-year anniversary. 
Well, the state of the war at the moment, as you know, is is kind of uh, in a, kind of a stalemated situation, and I think in that sense, you know, the president's visit to Ukraine and then, of course, his speech in Poland, I think, are just re- really remarkable. It reminded me of a, a statement uh, the former UN ambassador uh, under the Obama administration, Bill Richardson, said after um, President Biden was elected, he said. He will be a foreign policy president. And I think this the imagery that you've seen, both uh, in terms of the rather grueling uh, trip to get to Kiev. I mean, I was looking at or reading about, uh, you know, the kind of the two plane flights that you had to take and then the 10-hour uh, train ride to get to Kiev is, is really quite remarkable here. Uh, and then obviously the return. So I think that is kind of the, the highlight of the kind of commitment that the United States has, and also that the president has, uh, to supporting uh, Ukraine. And then his rather, as you played there, his rather strong, uh, very, very strong endorsement of NATO. Uh, one other line from that I thought was really right, quite remarkable. He, he made a statement about Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which means an attack upon one is an attack upon all. And I thought also that Sort of summarized where we at, where we're at, and then you kind of compare that with on the same day, frankly, that the president was speaking uh, in Warsaw. Uh, president Putin was giving this two-hour speech uh, in Moscow, in which he said, uh, in rather stark terms, frankly, that no longer was it just a war about Ukraine; it was a war with the West here that they were trying mm-hmm. to undo. Uh, you know, Russia here. So we're really at a, a, a kind of a stalemated situation. And we can add in, and, and maybe we will here a little bit later, uh, you know, the Chinese view of, uh, of this situation yeah. and, and the role that they want to play. So right now we have these very, very stark differing views uh, of, you know, what, what the situation is with regard to Ukraine and, what, and more generally what the situation is within Central, Central Europe. Yeah. In just a moment, I want to turn to Megan for uh, how this has impacted us here domestically in the U.S. But to follow up on what you just said there, uh, Jim, and we will get to China uh, in a few minutes, but uh, to, to focus more on uh, on Putin here, it's clear his plan put into action one year ago has been a disaster for him and and for the uh, Russian people, for the Ukrainians, uh, far from toppling the Ukrainian government in a matter of days and installing a puppet regime, uh, we have this stalemate, which is costing hundreds of thousands of lives and and tolls in so many other ways. I wonder, Jim, I guess the big question here, isn't it, what are Putin's goals now that his, uh, I mean, very clearly early on, his initial goals did not succeed. Where are we now a year later with knowing what Putin's goals will, what, what, what would satisfy him, if anything? Yeah, I think it's obviously a great unknown because, but he has been very staunch in terms of not giving up. Uh, the The question is whether there will be any opposition. I think within Russia here uh, to to change his mind here. Uh, and right right now, I I see uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, that by the spring we're going to have lots of uh, more fighting. Uh, in uh, in the Donbass region and Luhansk, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's going to be more, more tragedy associated with this. Uh, I do not think that he will give up on his goals. His, his larger goal here, uh, we can take it one step further, he wants to see how much, if there's war fatigue among the Western states here. Mm-hmm. And he, I think, is convinced that he can hold together Russia here, at least in the short term. And will the, will the West uh, stay together or will they, in fact, start to suffer from war fatigue and you know, bring to mind what President Biden said during, even during his campaign about ending forever wars? Will, will, that, will that put a drag uh, on the American commitment and, uh, and importantly, the European commitment. I don't think so, but I think that's the, the longer-term kind of goal, not to give up on Ukraine and hope that there will be uh, divisions within the West. Yeah, and it seems right now is a good time for you to talk about China here, Jim, uh, because that is really pivotal, isn't it? it whether, um, I mean, the question of whether the U.S. and NATO allies, other NATO allies have staying power, but whether Russia has staying, staying power and the necessary technology uh, right. to carry on yeah. is is uh, the, the question for China. And I know uh, our Secretary of State Blinken has been warning China, what, repeatedly over the past few days, do not backfill, do not provide this military technology that Russia will need to continue this war. Yeah, I think that this has been a very, very uh, smart uh, kind of strategic move uh, by the secretary and by the U.S. government generally. They clearly have some intelligence. And you may recall prior to the uh, outbreak of the war uh, now a year ago, they were also releasing intelligence, uh, setting up these warnings. And I think that this, uh, and really Putin was surprised, the Russians were surprised at how much the Americans and the West knew uh, about, their, about their eventual plans here. Uh, and I think that this is the same kind of strategy that, that Secretary Blinken is engaged in, in warning the Chinese, you know, not to take this step of providing, uh, you know, military and technical assistance uh, to, to Russia here. We've had this visit by China's top diplomat, Wang, Wang Yi, who, who was apparently is in Moscow at the moment and was meeting with Putin today, uh, you know, in terms of uh, consolidating the relationship and also announcing uh, that President Xi will make a visit uh, to Moscow, although it's not particularly clear when, but sometime in the spring. I don't know if that's going to be before the fighting uh, kind of resumes at a high level. Uh, or or not, but so there is this kind of danger of this mm-hmm. uh, uh, this kind of hegemony uh, effort by the uh, Chinese and and the Russians uh, with regard to um, with regard to Ukraine. What is really okay, stay interesting put, Jim, is we have to take yeah. a break, Jim. We have to take a break. We'll get more of your views. Also, when we come back, Megan Goldberg um, will weigh in on the domestic implications here in the U.S. of the Ukraine war as we near the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, a Politics Wednesday edition with Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, and uh, we're uh, focusing much of the program on the near one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, inviting you to join us, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, Megan, before we get to you with some domestic uh, considerations uh, uh, of this war, let's go to Mary in Iowa City. Uh, she uh, dialed one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Mary, welcome to the program. What's your question Hi. or remark? Well, I have one one remark for your experts. It's a book called Stakes of the War by Lofoot Started. It's about how the nineteen nineteen uh, that peace agreement in Paris was supposed to be settled. Now, that gives a history. It's written by an American back in 1914. And I see this war as evil. And, I, and I'm a Democrat, but I see Joe Biden as an evil old man to encourage those people to get murdered. If I was my old prejudiced self, I would say, oh, that's just white folks killing white folks. But no, that's human beings being murdered. And this did not have to happen. You can brag about democracy or whatever. You can't bring back the dead. And this is why I get mm-hmm. so angry when people say, oh, you know how they're going to win. And then you won in China. You, we can't have a two-front war. And, and anybody with any sense shouldn't pay that, uh, what is his name, Brighton or whatever, any attention. We Blinken, have Blinken, I think it. you mean, yeah. Yeah, Mary, thank you very much. I think you've made your point loud and clear. Uh, Jim, a uh, reference to 1919 there, of course, the First World War, and, and who would have predicted a war similar to trench warfare of, um, you know, over 100 years ago, Jim? Well, yeah, it makes a very interesting point here. You know, it's really thought-provoking, the, those comments here about, uh, you know, whether the, you know, the necessity of the war. I think the one one additional point that I would make, though, is that, you know, it, the idea that a country can invade another country, you know, and one of the sacrosanct things in international politics is the sovereignty of states. And that really even goes back, you know, to uh, if you think of Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, and he, he said self-determination for all peoples here, uh, you know, was one of his watchwords at, at, uh, at the end of World War World War One here, and this invasion um, by Russia of Ukraine, I think, is really not, uh, you know, it cannot really be tolerated because what it, what does it portend to looking towards Poland or towards the the Baltic states? So, I, I think that, um, you know, that there the issue here of protecting uh, state sovereignty, protecting the right of of a state to exist, uh, also, uh, you know, has to fit into this equation and, and, and into this discussion. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Mary, thank you for your call, one 780 if you'd like to join our conversation with Jim McCormick and Megan Goldberg. Finally, to you, Megan. <laughs> we we want to get your take, uh, because I know you have some uh, some thoughts on this. As you consider the implication of the Ukraine war here in the, the U.S., uh, for instance, are, are most Americans behind Biden's strong support of Ukraine? Uh, are there fractures? What can you tell us? Yeah, so I think this has been really interesting to sort of watch unfold. Um, I think there's not a lot of opportunities in modern politics to see a new issue sort of arise. You see a lot of unity. If you remember a year ago, I mean, oh gosh, I remember going to a bakery in Solon that has some Ukrainian bakers and like the line was blocks down the street to support uh, this business um, and, you know, support Ukraine. And um, then we sort of saw over the past year, I think that um, there are now some fractures uh, in the Republican Party and we see some members of Congress um, opposing, you know, American support for Ukraine. Uh, And we've seen on sort of the pundit side, uh, especially on the very conservative sort of far right cable networks, uh, just outward support for Putin and and Russia and that regime. Um, and, you know, going so far as to, there is one show that sort of went, uh, their, their story sort of spread, um, sort of arguing that the US should support Russia because Russia is a Christian nationalist country. Um, and that's why we should support them and not Ukraine. Uh, and so we've seen this sort of fracturing that there there are now members of Congress, whereas everyone is sort of united at the beginning. Uh, it's like we have rally around the flag, but the Ukrainian flag. Um, and now we've seen a little bit. And, I, you know, I don't think uh, I think the people who are sort of migrating to this pro-Russia for, uh, opinion and sort of an anti-Ukrainian position, I think those are uh, conservatives who are very um, knowledgeable and interested in politics. This is not sort of among the mass public altogether. Uh, that's people mm-hmm. who are still engaged with this. Um, so I think this is really interesting for Biden. Um, and I'm sort of, you know, sort of trying to to unpack what his goals are here because we as Americans, like everyday people, don't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy. For the most part, this has fallen off of our radar. I would hazard a guess that a lot of people don't know that there's still a war happening. Um, And so I think this, the fact that it was sort of a surprise trip, um, the images are just really powerful. Um, That's going to bring some public attention back to it. And so I'm sort of, what what I'm sort of looking at is what uh, Biden is going to try to do with that public attention, because that's one of the powers of the president is drawing the public's attention to something. Yeah. Uh, 2024 presidential hopefuls have begun in recent days to to stake out sort of divergent positions on the matter. And we should mention we've seen uh, a a flurry of of these presidential hopefuls coming to Iowa in in recent days. But but it's interesting here when you remark uh, there, Megan, because uh, in the Washington Post had an article, I pulled a couple quotes from it. Nikki Haley, um, of course, the former Trump administration, United Nations ambassador, um, spoke about Russia and Ukraine in terms that are sort of familiar to observers of conservative foreign policy uh, that we we know from earlier times. Here's a quote from her. It's not a war about Ukraine. This is about a war on freedom. Uh, this is last uh, week in Exeter, New Hampshire, giving a speech, Nikki Haley. She goes on, because if Russia takes Ukraine, they said Poland and the Baltics are next 
and we're looking at a world war. And if Russia wins, you can bet China's going to take Taiwan. Iran's going to get the bomb. Now, that's Nikki Haley. Juxtapose that with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is also having an eye on 2024, uh, offering a polar opposite uh, take, uh, appearing to move toward uh, former President uh, Donald Trump's more, I guess, a hands-off posture. Here's his quote from recently. I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into a proxy war with China, getting involved over things like the borderlands or over Crimea, he, he told Fox News in this quote. He added, it's important to point out the fear of Russia going into NATO countries and all of that and steamrolling that is not even coming close to happening. I think they've shown themselves to be a third-rate military power. Uh, Jim, to you on this apparent division, at least with, when we talk about 2024 presidential hopefuls in the GOP column. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, uh, kind, of, kind of divide here, um, you know, because uh, I think Nikki Haley's position is probably uh, closer to what most of the Republican um, supporters would be. I, I don't think the uh, sort of the, the Trump position here, I think increasingly there is this, this kind of divide. Obviously, there are some solid Trump supporters that will stay with them. But, but you know, this, this interpretation that uh, Russia is not to be uh, feared or that Putin is not, doesn't have expansionist kind of uh, aims, I think is really not going to be endorsed by the by the American public and and the public opinion polls, even with the softening of support, uh, there is even with among Republicans and independents, the strongest support is among Democrats. But among Republicans and independents, the polling results show that they're still above this 50 percent watermark here. So I think the the kind of Trump position is really out of step with uh, both Republicans and certainly independents and obviously with uh, with with Democrats here. Uh, and I think what we've seen really, uh, just to segue into that with these candidates, is that a number of these candidates are really trying to move away from uh, move away from uh, Trump position, uh, and you know talking about as Hick Nikki Haley has talked about in terms of you know uh, cognitive tests and and so on uh, for the for more elderly uh, politicians here. We have to move on to a, a new generation. So I think that that is more likely uh, uh, where where things are at uh, within within the Republican within the Republican Party. I I don't think that there would be very much strong support for what uh, what uh, Trump is saying in terms of you know to to look askance at what what the Russians are doing. Yeah, Megan, anything to add to, to what Jim said, or perhaps disagree with? No, so I, I definitely agree. I think this is uh, Republicans finding another perhaps fault line within the party and sort of trying to battle over uh, what the party looks like going forward. Is it going to be a return to, you know, a lot of what Nikki Haley says, you know, for me, for someone like my age, right, I just like hear the echoes of, uh, you know, the wars in the Middle East and George W. Bush um, and the way we talked about the role of the U.S. on the world stage. And, uh, you know, are we going to return to that um, or is it the sort of like new way forward uh, embracing a lot of the politics of Trump, even if it's not even if you're not Trump, uh, sort of the way DeSantis is going? And I think this is just another issue where they're sort of grappling over the direction of the party. 
Let me throw in another facet. There's so much to talk about in connection with Ukraine, but um, a lot of it gets buried in, in you know headlines after headlines with really remarkable developments. But the U.S., perhaps many of our listeners miss this, the U.S. has determined that Russia is committing crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris announced that on Saturday. This was an address in uh, at the Munich Security Conference. She detailed that Russia is responsible for, quote, widespread and systemic attack against Ukraine's civilian population, uh, citing evidence uh, here. And let's listen to what she had to say uh, in Munich on Saturday. Think of the images of Busha. Civilians shot in cold blood. Their bodies left in the street. The jarring photograph of the man who was riding his bike. Think of the four-year-old girl who the United Nations recently reported was sexually assaulted by a Russian soldier. A four-year-old child. Barbaric and inhumane. In the case of Russia's actions in Ukraine, we have examined the evidence. We know the legal standards. And there is no doubt these are crimes against humanity. Vice President Harris in Munich on Saturday. Jim, how does this further charge of crimes against humanity, and we should note, in addition to war crimes earlier stated by the U.S., U.N., how does that shape the implications for this conflict ending? Well, those uh, remarks and images that the vice president uh, made are just really stunning. I mean, they're just breathtaking really to to recall some of the uh, the inhumanity that occurred um, you know under there is something called the responsibility to protect doctrine uh, which the United Nations um, actually uh, passed uh, going back to 2005 uh, which incorporates exactly these kinds of uh, incidents here there is now currently the international crisis group out of the, I think it's out of the Hague that has also been uh, readily documenting uh, these kind of crimes against humanity. So once this conflict's end, I mean, and I think the the uh, uh, vice president, as I remember her remarks, said these people will be held accountable. She also included mm-hmm. that in her remarks. And I think that will be what the challenge for the for the international community at the at the end of this conflict and Obviously, the conflict will end, whether, you know, whether with a whimper or a bang or whatever, uh, it, it, will, it will end. And uh, those that have been so responsible for these uh, inhumane actions will have to be called to account. Uh, and, uh, you know, can the international community, I think the, really the challenge is, can the international community, uh, you know, exercise uh, that kind of uh, accountability that, that is uh, really, really necessary here? I think also I should mention, and, and uh, you know, the, the U.N. is supposed to vote today or, or tomorrow, the General Assembly, 
uh, on another resolution, uh, you know, sort of on the anniversary of this first attack, uh, you know, condemning uh, the, um, the actions of Russia. We will see, you know, how many states abstain. Last time on this vote a year ago, 35 states abstained, five objected uh, to the resolution, and 141 uh, supported it. We will see if the tenor in the international community has changed, particularly if you add in not only the killings that have gone on, but these kinds of crimes against humanity that are reflected in some of these statements. Yeah. Um, we have to take a break in a couple minutes, but I think we can squeeze in. A, a, a Gary from Davenport, he writes in an email here, a very provocative question here. He said, we encourage Georgia to seek NATO and EU membership. Putin said this would be intolerable and invaded Georgia. Then we encourage Ukraine to seek NATO and EU membership. Also, Putin said that would be intolerable and invaded in 2022. Uh, Gary asks, if we had not so encouraged, would that have prevented Russian invasions? Uh, about a minute before we go to break, uh, Jim, what's your view on that sort of contrary view? But uh, it's prevalent. It's common in the U.S. We hear it. Yeah, uh... Actually, it's sort of unpredictable with, with Putin, but my own uh, sense is that uh, he would have had, you know, the whole issue of in Georgia with South Ossetia and so on. Uh, you know, I, I think that if he had not been able to, uh, you know, maintain control and keep Russian uh, officials in there, I think he still would have uh, would have gone ahead, uh, whether there had been the... Um, the initiative, or at least the proposal, uh, to have Georgia and and Ukraine uh, enter. I mean, uh, Crimea came about, uh, you know, in in 2014. So, I think that, uh, unfortunately, my own assessment is that, given uh, Putin's determination to kind of restore the glory of uh, of the former Soviet Union, he would probably have gone ahead, uh, regardless of whether there had been a statement about. Uh, getting those two countries into NATO, which, of course, by the way, the Europeans have objected to. So it was it was basically okay. a dead letter. OK, <laughs> when we come back, we'll pick up our conversation focusing more on domestic politics. Um, I won't say we won't mention Ukraine, but we want to really pivot over to domestic politics here. Uh, and just a reminder that tomorrow, uh, the entire hour will be focusing on Ukraine with uh, political scientists and sociologists, a different crew than Megan or Jim. So note that if you'd like to get into the conversation tomorrow, that's tomorrow on River to River. Back in just a moment with Megan and Jim. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. We are back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, a Politics Wednesday edition of our program on the eve of the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Jim McCormick with us of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Just a reminder, as we switch gears here and focus more on our domestic politics for the rest of the hour, tomorrow's entire program we will devote uh, to... Um, um, topics, uh, issues related to the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war. So we hope you'll tune in and ask your questions either via email or by phone. Uh, 
Let's talk about a new poll out today, uh, the latest NPR, PBS, Marist, NewsHour, Marist poll. Uh, President Biden uh, seeing his highest approval ratings in this poll in almost a year. Uh, Former President Trump uh, hoping to get back his job, of course, uh, getting his worst scores among potential Republican voters in years. It's a survey conducted last week uh, before uh, Biden's visit to Poland and Ukraine. But after the president's State of the Union address, um, Biden polling, let's talk about that, and then we'll focus on the GOP candidates. Uh, So we must remember inflation, uh, stretching Americans' wallets, uh, the the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, Biden struggling with dismal approval ratings. He bottomed out at 36 percent in July of last year. Um, uh, but he has made steady improvements since then. On this poll, he's up to a 46% approval with all respondents, even higher, 49% with registered voters. Uh, Megan Goldberg, uh, tell us uh, what you make of this poll regarding Biden. Then we'll get to the GOP candidates. Why the rebound? Yeah, so, you know, I think that in some ways this just reflects Uh, you know, sort of what we call the fundamentals model in political science, that our presidential approval ratings are driven by the general state of how things are, especially with respect to the economy. Uh, You know, so I feel like uh, there's perhaps... you know, gas prices are down. Um, I know we there's still obviously inflation on groceries. Um, but the other thing I think is that even if the sort of objective reality of the economy hasn't shifted as much for people in terms of sort of what's hitting their pocketbooks, um, I, I think that in some ways this reflects that um, we are now in a post-election season where there's not as much active campaigning going on. And so there's not sort of these opinion leaders in the way of candidates for office sort of highlighting um, what's wrong all the time. Uh, and instead, you have Biden who can go on these. He has all of these different platforms because when he speaks, people will pay attention. News outlets will pay attention. Um, and he can really emphasize this message of the U.S. is on the right track. You know, if you listen to his rhetoric, it's always very hopeful, very positive about the state of the world, uh, especially the U.S. today. And so I think we're seeing a reflection that we've moved past. We are in a period before the election of just a lot of heated debate and contentiousness, and we're not in that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim, your reflections on this poll, I don't know how d- deep you dug into it. You have classes and f- other things to do there at, at Iowa State <laughs> University. But what strikes you about this poll? Jim, are you there? Yes, I'm right here. Okay, good. Hello? We lost you for a moment, but we have you I'm, back. Okay, if you can, I'm if, right here. We, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Re- 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 reflect on the poll con- con- concerning Biden's numbers here for us, please. Yeah. What struck me, first of all, was that there's been an uptick in support for Biden among Democrats. He's now at his highest level of 88%, uh, you know, in a, in a very, very long time. And interestingly, he even got a little bit of an uptick among uh, among Republicans here. And so I think that both of those in combination, because independents, it looks like, didn't really change very much in terms of their approval rating. So there is some coming home by the Democrats as they have now really begun to realize he's going to run for reelection. And there's a bit of a rally effect, if you will, uh, around uh, around that particular candidate. I'm not sure why there's an uptick among Republicans, although 
you know, the numbers are pretty small here uh, among Republicans. I think that the, if you take another poll in another week or 10 days here, after these very successful trips, foreign policy trips, uh, I think mm-hmm. there'll be a, even more of an uptick for Biden. Because there is always, when a president acts decisively in a foreign policy arena, there tends to be a slight rally effect. It's not great, but it's a, you know, averages about 5%, 5% increase. So I wouldn't be surprised if Biden gets a, a bit of an uptick, uh, particularly from independence here, uh, you know, after yeah. uh, after this trip, which which can't be described in any way except as a great success. You know, first of all, taking the initiative to go to to go to Kiev and in an unprotected kind of way, uh, and then uh, the uh, really strong, strong speech that he gave in, in defense of democracy and in defense of NATO uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jim, to, to follow on that, of course, the Democrats worrying about uh, Biden's age, uh, eighty years old, and and we saw what a State of the Union address we saw there a few days ago, uh, full of energy, and then this right. trip to Kiev, uh, hardly something that an average average eighty year old American is capable of, right, Jim? So absolutely, the vigor that he displayed you know, is really quite remarkable. And as again, not to go back to his trip, but taking a, after flying across the ocean, uh, the Atlantic, then taking a 10 hour train ride to Kiev from Poland. Uh, you know, that's endurance plus, it seems to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I get tired just thinking about it here. Let's switch to the <laughs> GOP candidates in this in this poll. Uh, clear pictures emerging of uh, now perhaps of who potential um, uh, uh, who who the, the backing here for some of the names we've been hearing and some of them coming to Iowa. Um, Trump, uh, DeSantis, uh, Haley, uh, and and Pence. Megan, back to you. What do you see in the poll numbers for these Republican candidates for 2024? And Iowans will undoubtedly get to know them over the coming months as we're one year away from uh, the caucus for the Republicans here in the state. Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting because we do see these other GOP candidates putting, you know, Nikki Haley was just uh, here uh, in my neck of the woods yesterday, putting a lot of effort into Iowa, a state that, um, you know, at least the, the Republicans in the primary process uh, stood behind Trump. And and you could see that that support was still there in the way that even during this last election, uh, you know, our elected officials who are incumbents who are running again, who are Republicans, um, you know, sort of hosted him for events and were not sort of afraid to be associated with him. Um, But on the other hand, I think one of Trump's biggest strengths was the way in which he captured media attention in previous election cycles. And I think he has not been able to successfully do that as well here uh, in this cycle. And so I think that's part of the reason he's struggling a little bit. But I'm really interested, too. You know, I think there's these new tactics uh, that are out there available with technology. So I, you know, we read yesterday that Trump has sort of been geo-targeting uh, where his opponents are with ads. So if if Nikki Haley is in Cedar Rapids, um, Cedar hmm. Rapids folks on Facebook are seeing Trump ads directly attacking Nikki Haley. Uh, and so I think that's a really interesting strategy. And we'll see sort of what happens as Trump starts to show up in the state. That's sort of what I'm watching is uh, what's his approach going to be for sort of the ground game uh, in a state where he's historically been strong. 
Yeah. I want to have you, Megan, remark on, on Pence's visit last week, on the, um, and we'll hear a, a clip from Pence in just a moment. Uh, Iowa Representative, um, uh, Congressional Representative Ashley Hinson spoke just before Pence was at a Cedar Rapids pizza ranch last week, uh, and both really leaning into this parental rights debate that we have going in here in Iowa. Pence spoke out against the Linmar School District's gender identity policy uh, that is so embroiled in controversy. The policy affirms and facilitates students' gender identity transitions without parental involvement. Listen to what Pence called it. He called it radical gender ideology. Here's what he had to say. Beyond the battles over critical race theory, as Congresswoman Hinson just said, now, a radical gender ideology has slipped into our classrooms, teaching children to hate their own bodies and furthering the notion that it's possible to transition from one gender to another. And worst of all, I don't need to tell you here, some school districts, parents are helpless to stop this from happening. Across the country, parents' rights are being trampled by a politically correct nanny state that's ruining our schools and telling parents they have no rule in, role in their child's education. So I am here to say, on behalf of families in Iowa and on behalf of conservative organizations who are fighting this in court today, we are going to defend parents' rights and the children of Iowa and America. Megan Goldberg, comment on that uh, there. I think uh, the, the, the former vice president had at odds with some of the science on gender identity for, for one thing there. But comment on uh, this attack uh, there of, of taking that local issue and appearing in Cedar Rapids. Yeah, you know, so I think that this is a local issue that our school boards are dealing with, but it's also not unique to Iowa. So, you know, Iowa has been considering at the state level this law to uh, ban teaching about uh, gender identity or um, sexuality for gay or for grades K through three, uh, and then two states over, Indiana has an almost identical law that they're considering right now. I actually saw a tweet from an Indiana journalist, and I thought it was about Iowa um, because the laws are so similar. Uh, and this is happening hmm. all over the country. So, what's really interesting is that it it is something we're dealing with locally, but it's also national. Um, I think that also, if you look at the historical. Uh, sort of contours of the religious right uh, and the Republican Party on dealing with cultural war issues. Uh, it's always about education and children. But that's how it always sort of starts. It's what it often centers around, um, right? When it, it was it was evolution at one point. It was prayer in schools. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, it was, can we read Harry Potter um, and our schools teaching us like witchcraft? Um, and so, you know, this is sort of, it's, it's in some ways more of the same, um, but I think this language of parental rights is, is really interesting. I think that, uh, you know, there, there's obviously, uh, in most states where they're proposing these laws, you know, Ben, you're absolutely correct. The medical establishment, doctors, researchers, hospital systems, mental health professionals uh, have all sort of stood up and advocated for the type of care that's being banned, um, that, you know, this is all important and that a lot of the sort of storytelling and myth making about what's happening in schools is, is really not a reflection of reality. Um, and so I think, you know, I think what's sort of interesting at the end of the day 
um, is whether or not Republicans are overreaching on this issue, because most people mm. who most people send their kids to public schools and many parents really, really love their public school teachers. Uh, I know teachers often don't feel supported. And there's many reasons for that. Uh, but most people, even if they have problems with the school system, it's kind of like we hate Congress, but we love our congressmen. People love their teachers uh, and respect teachers. Uh, and so at some point at the end of the day, you know, you have this idea that it's radical ideology in the schools, but like, you know, your your kid's kindergarten teacher and you know that they're just reading like elephant and piggy at school. And, and, and so, um, you know, I think that there's perhaps a ceiling to this, um, but that's sort of what I'm, I'm watching for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, I'd love your view on this, the candidates swinging through, by uh, Pence in particular, taking a local issue uh, along with a, a Republican congresswoman here in Iowa. Right. I, you know, one of the weaknesses that the Republicans have had in, in recent elections is in the suburbs, uh, and particularly, uh, you know, in terms of Republican leaners in the suburbs. And I think this is an issue that they think that they can exploit, not just in Iowa, but really nationally here. And they they are really reflecting or relying upon, you know, the, the Virginia governor's race in which Glenn Youngkin uh, used this kind of an issue. And so I think it's really uh, an issue that, uh, as Megan said, it's, it's national, but I think it's really focused on a particular, uh, you know, suburban elements, uh, maybe not so much in Iowa because there's a lot of rural uh, uh, districts as well. But I think nationally, it's an issue that, you know, uh, Governor DeSantis, if he wants to run for the presidency, will will likely focus on this issue. So I, I think it's, it's a, a tactic. I, I don't doubt that it's firmly held and firmly believed, but I think it's also uh, a very strong political uh, selection here because this is a, an area of weakness and where they need uh, some more votes or that they have lost votes uh, in previous elections. So I think I see it, you know, uh, as as also a, a political strategy uh, that that the Republican Party uh, can embrace and, and hopefully can uh, win some from some votes from. Yeah. Uh, Megan, back to you on this. Uh, you know, of course, uh, many uh, LGBTQ advocates saying this is a civil rights issue. This is not really a culture war issue. This is a civil rights issue. Do you see that narrative getting through um, uh, and, and uh, saturating enough of the um, American consciousness here uh, that, that it will make a difference? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know how much that moves public opinion, uh, but I do think that where that narrative matters quite a bit and also the the seriousness of the argument behind it uh, is that a lot of these laws are being um, held up in court. Sorry, not like... Um, held up as unsupported, but they are uh, being blocked in courts and they're stuck in the legal process right now because there are a lot of different ways that you can challenge these laws on the basis of civil rights, um, you know, under equal protection. Uh, for doctors, sometimes it might be under the First Amendment. And so there's a lot of legal avenues here that, um, you know, making this, developing further this argument about civil rights is really important uh, in, in so far as these laws are being challenged in the court system. And that's where you might see, um, and that's in the past where we've seen some of these issues go. If you think about school prayer, if you think about, um, 
mandatory uh, recitations of the Pledge of Allegiance. Like a lot of these education issues also work their way through the courts. And so that's where this sort of argument is really useful. Okay. Uh, We've run out of time for today. Thank you for the wealth of insights, Megan Goldberg and Jim McCormick. Uh, The hour is always far too short uh, with analysts uh, such as yourselves. Uh, uh, Megan Goldberg, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cornell College. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Ben. And Jim, uh, on this um, bad weather day, thanks for coming into our studio. And Ames, Jim McCormick, <laughs> professor of political science at Iowa State University. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ben. Enjoyed it. Tomorrow on this program, we mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We'll hear from a Ukrainian student here in the Midwest what it's been like for her keeping in touch with her family back in Ukraine during this year of war. Also a University of Iowa political scientist, a sociologist, and a native of Crimea, Marina Zalaznaya. That's tomorrow on the program. Today's program produced by Danny Gear with help from Caitlin Traupin. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.